and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back. First time listeners finding the show. Welcome aboard. Always happy to have new listeners. There's a lot of content out there, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of podcasts for people to choose from. So when you do come aboard, I always want to extend a warm welcome. And for those of you who continue to support this show, thank you so much. Thank you for being subscribers of Counterpunch. Thank you for keeping us going. More than 25 years, Counterpunch has been printing on paper, been putting out this website, original content every single day. Uh, It's not easy and it's not free, so we really do depend on you guys. If you're not yet a subscriber, please consider becoming one. You can pick up the phone and call Counterpunch at the office. You can do it through the website. You can use your PayPal, whatever works best for you, but you get that magazine in the mail every other month. It's wonderful to have, and of course, you also have the satisfaction of being one of our supporters. So thank you so much for that and for considering becoming a subscriber. So let me turn to my guest today. I'm very happy to have him aboard. This is somebody who I read every single time he publishes something. I uh, have a tremendous amount of respect for his analysis. Michael Roberts is on the show. Michael is the author of a very important and influential blog on the left. It is thenextrecession.wordpress.com. I could not possibly recommend it more highly for uh, economic analysis from a Marxist perspective. Uh, Michael is the co-editor of the recent book, World in Crisis, a Global Analysis of Marx's Law of Profitability, and the author of last year's Marx 200, a review of Marx's economics 200 years after his birth, and perhaps uh, the book that he's maybe most well-known for, The Long Depression, that was from 2016, and boy, it's still topical today, so we'll turn to Michael. Michael, welcome to the show. Well, it's great to be here, Eric. Uh, I really uh, appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with you and for listeners to consider all the issues that were involved that face us now in the world economy. Absolutely. And it does seem like there's just so much going on. So let's jump right into one of the stories that was dominating headlines in the United States in particular, but I think probably around the world last week had to do with the Federal Reserve here in the United States pumping cash into the overnight market. Tell us about that. What does that mean? Why do they do that? What is the overnight market? Well, let's start with you. It's a bit of a technical issue. So I hope listeners are concentrating. Um, The overnight market is uh, where banks borrow money in order perhaps to lend to uh, where they can't get any money from anywhere else and they need to meet certain commitments on that particular day, they can go to the Federal Reserve and they can borrow money from the Federal Reserve at a certain interest rate at the moment. It's actually zero or below zero nearly. Um, And they can use that money then to meet the commitments they've got on a daily basis. What has happened in the last week is that because the banks found that they had a huge amount of commitments in purchasing of bonds in particular and other sorts of government paper, because there's been a massive uh, demand for government bonds uh, as a safe haven, a place to park your cash in case the stock market should go down or the economy should go down. Around the world, uh, most investors and banks and institutions are pitching into government bonds as safe uh, investments to hold because governments don't go bust. So there's been a big demand to get those, uh, purchase those bonds, which means that the banks have found that uh, the their customers are whipping through their deposits to buy bonds, reducing therefore the bank's liquidity that they've got available to meet their own commitments and other uh, borrowings. So they found themselves really short of cash. As a result, the overnight market interest rate shot up. And that interest rate is determined by whether banks are prepared to lend to other banks to meet their commitments. And it seemed that some of the major banks in America weren't prepared to lend to other banks overnight because uh, for whatever reason, maybe they need the cash too in order to meet their commitments. And so there was a what they call a credit crunch or a liquidity squeeze in the overnight market. So that forced the Federal Reserve Bank, which is the lender of last resort, Uh, just like central banks around the world, are the lender of last resort for banks to come in with a a load of money. In other words, they printed money, they increased the reserves that the banks hold with the Federal Reserve because the banks all hold a certain amount of reserves. And though sometimes those reserves are in excess of what they need legally, but the excess has really disappeared virtually. So they had to pump in more money to the tune of 50, 60 uh, billion 
over the past few weeks, a uh, past week or so, and that uh, enabled liquidity to improve and the interest rate to drop. The interesting thing is, Eric, that the interest rate was near zero in the overnight market, and because of the crunch, it shock, shot up to seven or eight percent. So suddenly, banks were having to borrow at a seven or eight percent rate only overnight. Uh, but nevertheless, that was a massive increase in costs. So that liquidity crunch had to be broken. Now, I suppose the question we might ask and re- listeners might ask is, why is that happen- happening? Well, as I say, the main reason is the banks suddenly found, uh, at least American banks, that they had huge commitments and their customers were buying so many bonds and they had to meet uh, these commitments uh, as, their de- as deposits fell uh, that they were forced to borrow money in the short term. So you could say, well, it's a little bit of a blip, but I think what it indicates is that there's a tremendous demand for safe assets and people are trying to get away from buying anything that looks risky, like stocks um, or uh, corporate debt and so on, or certainly uh, debt and equities in other countries. And that's causing uh, this squeeze to take place when cash runs a bit short. Exactly. Now, how is this different from quantitative easing? Well, that was a deliberate policy introduced by the central bank and governments around the world to try and ease liquidity back in the uh, global financial crash of 2008-9 and onwards, the Great Recession that followed, when many banks were close to going bust and lots of companies found that they had no, they weren't able to meet their uh, obligations to the banks in the loans that they got. So there had to be a huge pumping in of money first to prop up the banks so that they didn't have a liquidity crunch, which they'd suffered. And as we know, some of the banks went to the wall uh, in Wall Street, literally, uh, Bear Stearns. And of course, the famous one was Lehman Brothers in the latter part of 2008, which really kicked off this liquidity crunch. And so uh, Federal Reserve and other central banks had to think of a way of getting money into the banks so that they didn't collapse. They first of all cut interest rates to the bone, then they provided some short-term lending similar to what we've just seen this week, but eventually they adopted what is called unconventional monetary policy, namely that they looked at a way of just pumping in billions and billions of dollars, euros and yen into the banks so that they were flooded with, with cash available, they hoped, to lend on to companies and households and cause a revival in the economies of the major capitalist economies and also to boost inflation because if you have lots of debt and and prices are falling, then the cost of paying that debt actually rises in real terms. So you want to inflate the economy, you want to make the economy grow, and they thought a program of what they called quantities of money, not easing through cuts and in interest rates, but easing through increased quantity of money, quantitative easing would provide the monetary weapon to turn things around. Unfortunately, it did not happen. Right. And it seems and it seems like what it actually created is a sort of dependence on that policy. And it seems like just in the last few days, we've seen a return to that policy in Europe, haven't we? So is quantitative easing back? Is it back only in Europe? Are we going to see this around the world? Well, I think what we've seen is the change in the what is happening to the uh, growth and uh, in, in, of investment and production in in the major economies around the world since the end of the Great Recession, when everything slumped, every nearly every country in the world suffered a contraction in its output and investment. There are only two countries that didn't suffer a contraction. That was China and Australia. Everybody else had a, an absolute fall in their production and investment in 2009. Since that ended and growth began again. Uh, they've been trying to find ways, policies to drive growth up, get employment's fallen, but people's real wages haven't risen very much at all, if anything at all, in many major economies. And investment has stayed poor and productivity is terrible. So growth rates are very low, whereas most countries, advanced capitalist countries, are growing at something like two and a half or three percent. Emerging economies are growing at four or five percent a year. Now, uh, the capitalist economies in the G7 and the, and the G20, on average, are growing at only uh, 2% or below. I've just seen a figure out today by the United Nations, which says the growth rate for the world this year will be 2.3%, which is the slowest growth rate since 2009. So we're in a sluggish, depressed situation for the world economy. 
that means people's incomes don't go up, uh, public services don't improve, uh, generally uh, conditions remain stagnant. And, and how can you overcome that? Well, banks thought they could do that by pumping money in central banks, pumping money into the, into the world economy. It didn't seem to produce a result. It picked up a little bit in the period 2016-17, and so all the central banks stopped. They said, everything's okay now, things are going back normal, uh, we can stop pumping money in, we can actually think of reversing that and taking money out. So the Federal Reserve started to take money out of the banks, uh, reducing its uh, uh, huge uh, build-up of assets in bonds, and it also started to raise interest rates. But lo and behold, within a short period of doing that, the world economy is slumped back down again, particularly in Europe and Japan, to a lesser extent in the US, but particularly in Europe and Japan. So the European Central Bank has now it's reversed its policy and is trying to pump extra money back into the bank. So we're back the full circle, Eric, from where we were in 2010, uh, back again, here we are, as we approach 2020, doing exactly the same thing, trying to, as it were, feed the dope addict with yet more dope in order to keep them going. Right. So it sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds to me like what is at the root of all of this is a global slump in production and a global slump in growth. And so my question then, and this leads into a whole other subject, but I think it's obviously relevant here, is that against the backdrop of a global slump in growth, Talk to me about what Donald Trump's trade war is doing here, because it seems like from the U.S. perspective, it seems like Donald Trump can can frame this as a win because U.S. economy doesn't seem to be impacted significantly by this. Whereas every day we read a new story about slumping exports from China, slumping production in China, etc. So can you talk to me about how Donald Trump's trade war against the backdrop of all the things you already mentioned, how that's impacting the globe? Yes. Well, I think that the first thing to say, Eric, is that and I'd like to remind listeners that the growth rates of all the major economies, with the exception, say, of China and India, have been very poor since the end of the Great Recession. Around, as I say, one and a half, two percent for most of those economies compared to around three before the Great Recession. So we're in what I call in, in my book in 2016, a long depression where things haven't gone back to normal, haven't gone back to the old rates. They've stayed lower. Uh, that means that p p wages and real incomes are lower, investments lower, productivity is lower. That means over a period of time, the lifetime of any uh, individual living in the US or in Europe, they're not going to have the same growth in wealth that I did in the, when I was uh, first starting work, say, uh, 50, 40 years ago or something like that. This is a much weaker, depressed period. In that situation, what we've seen is a lot of politicians uh, have come to the fore who are saying we're not standing for this. This is the fault of the the uh, institutions that we've got now, that it's the central bank or the governments and so on. There. And it's the fault in uh, some of the nationalists and the populists say both in Europe and in the US. It's the fault of uh, free trade and globalization and allowing foreigners uh, to take our markets away. So President Trump, and he's not the only one, have come up with a solution of telling the American people that you can get out of this mess simply by uh, stopping all these Chinese imports coming in, forcing them to uh, uh, pay their way, stopping them from using our technology, and generally putting America first by trying to drive up its uh, share of world trade. This policy, of course, is like uh, cutting your nose to spite your face. If you think that you're going to do that. If everybody starts doing this, everybody starts putting tariffs up against each other, blocking things, then the whole of world trade and world growth will continue, will start to fall back. Now, as you say, well, perhaps the Americans can win this battle. Yes, China's growth is slowing. Yes, India's growth is slowing. And it's all partly due to the decline in world trade. Actually, Erica just looked at the figures for world trade. There is no growth in world trade this year for now at the moment. Whereas before the uh, Great Recession growth in world trade was about five or six percent a year, faster than GDP growth. Since the end of the Great Recession in 2009, world trade growth has been lower than the, the very low growth rates in GDP. And now in 2019, it's actually zero. There is no growth in world trade. That means that if your country is in trouble economically, domestically, 
without having enough growth. It cannot expect the world to come to its aid through better trade and so on. So the situation means that uh, if this trade war intensifies, which it looks as though it will over a period of time, then it will eventually have an effect also on the US economy, even if it's already having an effect on Germany, on China and so on. Uh, the US will cannot escape from the impact of this world trade war if it intensifies over the next year or so. We shall see. Uh, the moment the American economy, because it's mainly dependent on what happens at home and not what happens in trade uh, around the world, it's going a little bit better than countries that depend on trade uh, like Germany, uh, like um, uh, China, although, of course, China is still growing at twice the rate of the US. Um, so but it will affect everybody. I don't think that the trade trigger, as I call it, uh, will just be pointed outside of America. It will also be pointed back into America. And many manufacturing and other jobs could go in the next 18 months as a result of this war, as tariffs stop the imp introduction of imports and other governments and other countries start blocking American exports. Right. And, and, and the other question related to that is the impact that it has on the global supply chains, because, of course, a lot of the impact that we would ultimately see in the United States won't be felt immediately in the in the data in the current year. It might be felt in next year or five years from now as these supply chains are forever altered. I mean, you see that already with regard to uh, U.S. agricultural exports, losing markets, big time farmers now, you know, really upset with the Trump administration, uh, the Trump administration throwing billions of dollars in subsidies at them to try yeah. to, you know, placate them for now. But that's only one sector. So can you talk a little bit about global supply chains and the permanent change that that could cause? Well, yes. I mean, what we've seen over the last 30 years is that countries like Britain, most of the European countries and the U.S. have imported a lot of their manufacturing and consumer goods from other countries where there is cheap labor where there is they are able to introduce new factories and employ people under worse conditions so that what we used to call the third world, all those countries uh, in Latin America, in Asia and uh, in Eastern Europe, where labor is cheap and people are ready to work and some of them are reasonably well skilled. So you can get much cheaper products and goods and even services done by those countries and imported back into the big economies uh, like the US and Europe. Uh, that has had beneficial effects, obviously, on uh, uh, the countries of the U.S. and Europe, and even to some extent in the countries in the uh, in the emerging world where these big factories and so on go have happened. Take China, for example. Uh, uh, over 800 million people have moved off the land into the uh, cities to work, perhaps under intense conditions, but for better wages than they would get in the rural uh, back waters of uh, China, uh, being exploited, yes, by Chinese companies, by foreign companies, but also massive increase in urbanization and housing and everything else that's going on in China as a result of this global trade. Now, if that uh, situation is to alter, it will mean, for example, if you take your Apple, Apple iPhone, which at the moment, all the bits and pieces are put together, the the rare earth minerals and other things that are required in China, then they're assembled in different parts of Asia, brought together for a very low increase in uh, costs for the owners of, uh, of Apple um, and through its intermediaries like Foxconn. So Chinese and other Asian workers only getting a few dollars an hour to do this. So then they can mark that up and transport it back into the, the West at a huge markup, so the value is increased dramatically uh, from China into America, and then the further markup within America and Europe to to the user at the door, there's a further markup. So the probably 80% of the value added in the Apple iPhone is actually appropriated by Apple and its subsidiaries outside of the places where it's made. Now, if China starts to, first of all, impose tariffs on American goods and stops the import of various goods necessary to make the Apple phone, that could be, have an impact. And also the other big thing is that China and other countries are attempting to provide competitors to Apple. So we've seen Huawei and other mobile phone companies that China has built, 
building and has developed the next not only have a huge market already in China and have eclipsed uh, Apple, but also are trying to build export markets outside with the latest technology, which they may well have copied from Apple and other and Microsoft and so on, but also developing themselves. So this new trade war is really a technology war, which is going to last for a long time as a battle develops between China and the US about who controls the key value-added chain markets around the world uh, based on the, the big technology companies. That's uh, very, very interesting to think of the trade war as a, as a tech war, and I think in many ways it is that. So let's take a quick break. A lot more to discuss in, from the global perspective. I want to I wanna get your take on the situation of the global oil market and the oil price, particularly in light of recent events and what that tells us about the global economy broadly. And then from there, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, financialization, renterization, and capital. So stick around on the other side of the break. I'll continue the conversation with Michael Roberts. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. No, no, the living ain't easy. In these times, no, the living ain't easy. back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Michael Roberts. The website, thenextrecession.wordpress.com. The book, The Long Depression from 2016. Also, uh, Mark's 200 and World in Crisis. I recommend everything that Michael does. So, uh, Michael, before the break, we were talking about the global economic situation, about the trade war, and about global supply chains. And I think that any conversation about the global economic situation in 2019 2020 is going to, in some way, center around oil and the oil price. It seems to be at the center of so many situations around the world. Recent news, of course, the attack in Saudi Arabia, which greatly hampered their oil production, their oil output, uh, obviously impacting global oil prices. I want to get your I want to get your comments on the global oil market and how you read this, because one of the major changes that we've seen over the last few years was the collapse of global oil prices from a high, you know, bouncing somewhere around 100 to 140 a barrel in terms of U.S. dollars, 100 to 140 a barrel a number of years ago, down to a low of something like 25 bucks a barrel, I think, in 2014. That major change, I think, has impacted quite a lot. So what do you see in terms of the global oil market, the global oil prices, which seem to 
to be bouncing around between 50 and 60, 60 bucks a barrel. And how does this impact the global situation? Well, I think, Eric, there are two aspects to the oil market. First of all, the simple old capitalist one of supply and demand. Um, what we've seen on the demand side, which if higher demand would mean a higher price, lower demand would obviously mean a lower price on the whole. What we're seeing on the demand side is that there's a, the demanding for oil and other products based on oil is increasing each year, but it's increasing at a slower and slower rate. There are two reasons for that. The first reason is that we're beginning to see alternative forms of energy taking over in many countries, uh, non-fossil fuels uh, or just natural gas and other uh, ways in which uh, we can power industry and transport without the use of oil itself. So that's one reason. So there's a slowing demand growth in oil, which would tend to drive the price down. The other factor is that there... Uh, Growth in the world economy has also been very poor since 2010 onwards, the last 10 years, as we've discussed earlier. So that means that the amount intensity of use of uh, oil and fuel products, yes, it keeps growing, but not as much as it used to when uh, the world economy was growing faster and needed more and more fuel and energy uh, sources. So on the demand side, there's a slowing factor. On the supply side, again, there's a slowing factor on price or a downward pressure on price. That is because there's a huge amount of oil available. Saudi Arabia has huge reserves and can pump out at will what it wants, something like 10 million barrels uh, a day. Uh, but the US has now become into the market through its uh, uh, use of surface-based oil products fracking and so on, which has completely opened up a whole new supply of oil and other products around that through the Midwest and so on. And US, which had virtually died as a, an oil supplier and exporter, has now dramatically come back as a major player. So there's plenty of oil around. Containers are full of oil. So those two factors together would suggest a lower price for oil. And that's why we see all the big drop from the extreme levels that you talked about down to 2014, and only a, a gradual rise since then uh, from 2014 to now. But, but this is the other factor, that's the political factor, because oil, as you say, is a big political issue globally. And it's a strategic factor who controls the oil supply in a world which is still dominated by fossil fuel energy. And we are seeing the result of a series of political and military conflicts over the last 10 years, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, the confrontation with Iran, uh, and the growth of opposition in the Middle East after the Arab Spring between the two wings of uh, Muslim religion, the Shias and the Sunnis, driving different states in different directions. And now we have continual either civil war or war, uh, minor wars, which, of course, mean that if you want to win a war, one of the best ways to do it is to cripple your opponent by crippling their main source of revenue, which in the case of Saudi Arabia and the sheiks and uh, corrupt princes that run that country uh, through the most backward and reactionary way, the best way to hit them is to hit their revenues and hit their oil plants. So the uh, Shia rebels in, in uh, Yemen uh, who seek to win their battle in supported by Iran, have attacked uh, Saudi uh, installations. And that's the sort of thing which can dramatically change uh, the level of oil prices around the world. But I think, Eric, I, I don't know what uh, the listeners think, that on the whole, assuming that we don't have a major confrontation, uh, which leads to, like we did in the Iraq war, uh, we're just going to have these hotspots which erupt on occasion, we're just going to see spikes in the oil price. And generally, the oil price is going to stay low because it's depressed as much as global economies are repressed, depressed at the moment in growth. And they also face competition eventually from non-fossil fuel alternatives. Well, and that's precisely the point, Michael, because a couple of weeks ago on this show, I had J.P. Satilli, and we were talking about a lot of these issues from a political perspective. And the point that he made, and I think it's it's germane to this discussion, is that right now you have a situation of 
almost war footing against Iran. Iran sanctioned and isolated their oil, basically a non-player in global markets. Venezuela isolated, sanctioned, almost a non-player in oil markets. Saudi Arabia crippled the Persian Gulf in crisis. Qatar battling with the Saudis, etc. You have all of these global crises around oil, and yet you don't see the increase in the oil price. And it seems like the oil interests around the world are rapidly realizing the diminishing returns of their product. I agree. And I think well, the interesting uh, longer term development is that all those reactionary states in the Middle East, which uh, Anglo-American and French imperialism set up in order to give them control of uh, oil based energy uh, in the last 50 or 60 years, these regimes are tottering. They're in trouble. Uh, they're they've, they've, uh, they're they're only maintaining their position through two ways, uh, massive support by, uh, and, and if necessary, militarily by Anglo-American imperialism, by, the, by Israel uh, as a uh, supporter, uh, or if you like, a client state of American imperialism, highly subsidized by American imperialism. And those uh, forces are there just keep, just keeps the Saudi princes in position because otherwise they would collapse very quickly. Then we would probably see a sharp change in, in the oil price. But while these regimes and, and the status quo is maintained, then the oil price will survive. But it is, as you say, a fragile situation which could sharply spike and cause. What does it mean for, for the rest of us not in these oil-based areas? It means that if oil prices rocket, if gas prices at the pump rocket, which is what will be the result, it's basically a huge tax on the spending, real incomes and spending power of people in Europe, Japan, and the US. Um, Actually, less so for the US because they have their own supply. But in Europe and here and in Japan, there's no supplies unless we get it from elsewhere. So it would mean a dramatic hit to the living standards if prices rocketed back to above $100 a barrel again, as they were um, in the period before 2014. Right. And it also raises this interesting question. And this is one of the most fascinating things for me in the intersection between global economics and geopolitics is that the United States is this oil producer. And at the same time, so in in one sense, it, along with the clients that you mentioned, definitely want the oil price to, to, to go up, to line their pockets. But at the same time, the oil price going up enriches uh, the Russians more than anybody, probably. And it is a tremendous boon to them. So you have this very interesting strategic calculus wherein the oil price going uh, staying depressed is helpful strategically by hampering Russia's economy. On the flip side, it is helpful when the price goes up. So this sort of very interesting kind of paradoxical yes. relationship, uh, I think, is uh, quite a conundrum for strategic planners. It is also. It means it shows the division is uh, between the various imperialist blocks around the world, because it's not in the interest of Europe and Japan for fuel prices to rise, energy prices to rise, because they don't really have their own energy-based sources. So, uh, But it is, to some extent, for Russia, the US, uh, and uh, Saudi Arabia, and Iran, if you like. So... You could say if Iran could sell its oil, which, of course, it's not able to do very easily at the moment. Uh, So you get that division, which is why Europe and Japan are very keen on the deal with Iran on the nuclear proliferation matter, while the Americans under Trump are not interested at all. And the Russians are playing the role in the Middle East of basically restoring some of the old dictatorships in their interest to maintain the position of uh, their influence in the area and therefore over the oil price as well. In the final portion of our conversation, I want to switch to a a different subject that you've written about most recently, and um, it's one that doesn't get nearly enough attention. Uh, So recently there have been some writings, I think, in the Financial Times and elsewhere about the question of financialization, financialization of the economy, and whether financialization can explain what we've witnessed in terms of the changes to the global economy in in the last few years. And uh, this question of financialization has been brought broadened into a into I think a, a larger question of rentierization rentierism and you know the the collecting of rents and you've written about this and I I would 
I guess, describe what you've written as being deeply skeptical of this very concept of a renterized economy, renterization. So um, let's introduce the subject, if we could. Uh, what is renterization as it's discussed in economic circles? And then specifically, how is financialization involved in that and how does it differ? Yes. Well, uh, I this is a bit of a technical thing, but it's, it is quite important because what we're getting is a lot of economists, economists on the left who are saying, who are anti-capitalists, they're saying that, that the, what the system we have at the moment is not working, it's not providing the people's needs, it's not reducing inequality, inequality is rising, uh, the economy is failing in, in to deliver uh, decent jobs at decent wages and better public services. All these things are failures of capitalism. Now, the argument of these left economists is the reason is uh, that what's happening is a lot of uh, big companies and capitalist companies in the private sector are no longer interested in investing in productive assets and employing people at decent jobs. All they're interested in doing is, as it were, gouging out a bit of profit from other people who are making money uh, and holding on to their share of the market by introducing various tariffs and blocks uh, in the technology sector, it will be through patents and uh, other rules which give them the control over research and development. The technology patents are key. And if they can monopolize those, like pharmaceutical companies monopolize uh, new drugs and are not able, nobody else is able to produce them once they're invented. In a, in a modern, rational world, if a company develops a good drug that can save many cancer patients, if you like, then everybody should just be able to produce it. No, no. A pharmaceutical company holds on to that right to produce that drug and nobody else can produce it for 30 or 40 years at huge price to, to the rest of society. Now, that sort of rent is the argument that the leftist economists put forward is saying this is what's wrong with capitalism. And combined with that, as you say, Eric, is the other idea of what is, these are long words, financialization. They're saying that what's happened to good old capitalism, which used to produce things, jobs, investment, uh, progress, and so on, is now being usurped by the banking and finance sector that squeezes the life out of good old productive capitalism and that, that everything is financialized, everything is in the interests of making a buck uh, for the banks and the financial institutions for speculating on the stock market, on the bond market, not for investing in new products, in new things that people need, and to provide decent jobs. So we've got this combination of, of a capitalism now that's only interested in extracting profits through um, controlling the market, monopoly. That's called renterization, if you like. It comes from Marx's idea that rents are really profits that have been monopolized and controlled. And financialization, namely the banks and the finance sectors are now so, so big that they can control and dominate the market against the interests of productive capital. Now, my skepticism about that is twofold. First, it implies, if that's the case, the solution to our woes is to end monopolies so that there's a free competition of the capitalists and they can all compete with each other and make things better in a harmonious way. This is often the view for, of famous economists like Joseph Stiglitz. Uh, uh, and that this way will reduce inequalities as well, because the monopolies are causing the inequality. This is the argument. And then the other argument is that we should regulate the banks. We should control the banks or break up the banks so that the financial uh, influence that they have over decent, good capitalists producing things is ended. Now, I think both that's not an explanation of what's wrong with capitalism. And also it's utopian. First of all, none of those things are going to happen. Uh, while we have a capitalist system and, and the strategists are in control of capital, then that sort of problem is not going to be ended. But more importantly, perhaps also, it's not an explanation of why capitalism has struggled over the last 10 years, for example, or has a series of booms and slumps on a regular basis. Financialization didn't exist before the 1980s, or at least economists didn't talk about it. Rent-seeking companies, big monopolies, didn't really play a role in understanding the nature of uh, capitalism back before the 1980s. And yet there were still big slumps and uh, crashes in the world economy. 1974-5 was a major international recession, but nobody talked about financial crash then or about 
monopolies uh, blocking the uh, progress. These are new developments which leftist economists think are the problem, but the problem relies really with capitalism itself, Eric. And what do I mean by that? Well, capitalism is a system where you produce things and services for a profit. As they used to say, General Motors wouldn't exist. It has to make money in order to exist. Companies are not interested so much in what they're producing, but whether they make a profit doing it. And therefore, it's a profit-driven economy. And the, but as Marx explained, yes, it's a profit-driven economy. That's the first thing he pointed out, which was often denied by other economists. The second thing is to say that's why there's a contradiction in capitalism. That's why it doesn't work, because profitability tends to fall over a period of time as capitalists compete with each other and try to get a bigger market share. They squeeze each other's profits. They drive up their own costs by employing more and more investment into big capital, big factories and offices, and less and less into the labor force that they've got. So there's a, there's a tendency for the profitability of the capitalist system to fall over a period of time. And yet they have to drive forward to get profits. So you have this contradiction. So in a periodic way, there's a slump in profits. And when that slump in profits takes place, then investment stops, people get laid off, people lose their money, and we have what we call a slump or a recession. And then once a lot of people have lost their jobs and a lot of companies have gone to the wall, the whole that allows those who have survived to start again, and the process starts. A new cycle of boom and then slump follows. In my view, the ideas of rentarization, long word, financialization, long word, are not really the fundamental causes of crises because it still remains based on the profitability of investment. And in my blog, and I've spent a lot of time trying to provide evidence to show that it's profitability of capital that's key uh, to understanding what's going on in capitalism and not some distortion of capitalism. So, because the argument of these people is that if we get rid of monopoly, then capitalism's fine. If we get rid of banks interfering, then capitalism's fine. Well, these are, these are both terrible enemies, monopolies and banks, but they will not solve the problem of capitalist crises because that lies in the very nature of the capitalist system as a profit-driven system. So is it fair to say, using the term financialization, that the that the crisis that you've been writing about this last decade, this, this long depression that we're in, is this long depression uh, a financialized depression? In other words, 2008 was precipitated not uh, by anything necessarily related to production. It was precipitated by uh, financialization, by credit, credit default swaps, mortgage-backed securities, yep. all of those type of financial instruments. So I think uh, a layman might say, well, what is he talking about? We clearly have a financialized economy, clearly financial instruments are what tank the economy. So wouldn't it be a financialized uh, uh, diagnosis to the problem? Yeah, well, I think if you look at the surface of the problem, clearly that's the case. What did we have in 2008-9? Crashes of banks, a major financial uh, slump throughout the world, triggering all over the place, as you say, driven by all what Warren Buffett used to call financial weapons of mass destruction, all these weird and wonderful exotic instruments that banks and other financial institutions had invented to sell to each other in order to make money. But a lot of this money was fictitious, is what to use Marx's phrase. It wasn't based on any real uh, production. It was based on buying and selling with each other and driving up the price of the stock market or the bond market uh, and then all the derivatives that go with it to make a profit. But uh, the party came to an end and then it crashed. Now, so you could say in that sense, the financial crash caused the crash in the economy. But I think I put it this way, that there, have been a, there are regular financial crashes. Uh, stock markets go up and down and have big slumps. But a lot of the, some of the time, those financial crashes don't need, lead to a crash in the economy itself, namely uh, a reduction in the investment by companies, the laying off of people from their jobs, uh, the reduction in real incomes or a depression as we, we have now basically in all those factors. By depression, I mean a very slow, poor growth. Uh, we don't have that every time there's a financial crash. So what that tells me is there's something else which decides whether a financial crash or another trigger that might cause it, like an oil price hike, uh, 
why, why that triggers something that's worse, that brings the whole economy down. And as I argue, I think that lies in looking at what's happening with the underlying profitability of the capitalist sector, which is uh, carrying out the process of uh, putting us to work and investing and so on. And what you find is if you look at the data, you can see that whenever the profitability of capital begins to fall, that's on average, not every company, of course, but across the board in the major economies. When that happens, profitability, when it falls and when profits start to fall, that's when you get a slump. And it will often it coincide with a trigger in a financial crash. You think of it this way. If you're a big investor, you've got lots of stocks and companies and suddenly the profits those companies are making start to fall you want to get out of those companies you want to sell your stocks so the, the and if you think it's going to fall you want quite often want to get ahead of anybody else so often stock market crashes indicate there's going to be a downturn in the economy as well but not always and that's the point what matters is what's going on in the what you might call the real economy and not what's going on in the world of wall street that matters Final question, since we're just about out of time, I, I don't I don't normally like to ask for predictions, and I'm not really asking for a prediction so much. But oh, I I'd love like to... predictions, Eric. <laughs> okay, well, you could give us your prediction, but uh, along these lines, uh, there has been quite a lot made in the last, I would say, three to four weeks in the corporate press uh, regarding the chances of the United States and indeed the entire global economy going into a recession. Right, this is something that it seems to be sagging some of Donald Trump's approval ratings. It's probably one of the things that really does keep him up at night. Uh, there's a lot of talk, you know, on the CNBCs and the Financial Times and Wall Street Journals of the world. So I want to get your analysis from a Marxist perspective, looking at the macroeconomic situation. Uh, how do you view this talk of a recession, considering you've been writing about a long one for more than 10 years now that we've <laughs> never really gotten out of? But the talk of recession, what does it signal to you about about confidence in the global economy and perhaps also about the political situation. Yeah, well, I think that first to say there's a difference between a recession and a depression. What I've talked about when I've talked about a depression for the last 10 years is there's been growth, but it's the Great Recession was a recession, a big slump in production and investment, actual fall. Then there's been growth, but the growth has been very slow and stagnant and poor. So that sense of call it a depression, like the 1880s depression America had as well, where growth was slow and poor after a big crash in uh, growth. So it's not quite the same thing as a recession. Actually, I argue in my book, The Long Depression, the only way we're going to end this depression is if if uh, capitalism has a huge slump, uh, which would clear out a lot of dead wood, if you like, and create the conditions for higher profitability. But have we reached that point? Well, I've been suggesting or predicting it for a couple of years now, and it hasn't happened yet. And I think the main reason it hasn't happened is because we've had a huge pumping of money in, as you say, to try and hold the banks up. We've had tax cuts to try and keep corporate profits up in America and elsewhere. We have desperate efforts by governments to try and avoid a recession. But time time now is running out. All the indicators to, from, that I can see, and you can read them on my blog, like corporate profit growth around the world is flat, uh, investment is slowing. Um, the companies, uh, investors are looking to safe assets. They're worried about the state of the stock market not holding up anymore. Every day the stock market seems to keep going up or staying up. And yet the real growth in the economy is weakening around the world. I think we're moving now to where we will get the recession, which is necessary for capitalism to start over again. Uh, how deep that will be, it remains to be seen. And when it will take place, well, I think we can increasingly say it's beginning to look as though it will be within the next year or so in some form. Uh, and usually recessions start in America because that's the biggest capitalist economy. At the moment, America looks a little better than Europe or Japan. But maybe that situation is going to change. And secondly, Eric, it's usually triggered by something which is looks external to what's going on underneath. It could be an intensification of the trade war. It could be some major collapse of a major company in America and Europe, which could trigger something. Uh, corporate debt is very high around the world at the moment. By that, I mean corporations have borrowed a lot of money. Interest rates are zero or negative, so they don't have to pay too much on it. But if that should change, like you pointed out when we started this discussion by a sharp rise in the cost of borrowing, 
then the situation for many companies will be very difficult. All those are things which could be triggered in the next uh, 6, 12, 18 months that could lead to a new global recession. That's my prediction. Very interesting. We're going to have to monitor all of those potential triggers. We'll leave it there. Michael Roberts, thank you so much for coming on the show. Listeners, the website, thenextrecession.wordpress.com. I'm going to tell you, this is, a pl- this is a blog that I go to every time there's a new post there. I highly recommend it. The books, uh, World in Crisis, A Global Analysis of Marx's Law of Profitability, which Michael co-edited, as well as Marx 200, A Review of Marx's Economics 200 Years After His Birth, and the really important book, The Long Depression. That was from 2016. Michael Roberts, thank you so much for coming and talking with us today. Thank you, Eric. Listeners, thank you as always, and we will chat again real soon.